You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening, you're listening to 3RRR, 102.7, and the show is... Plato's Cave. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined by Josh Nelson and Alexandra. Hello, Nicholas. We're going to talk film for you for the next hour. Or 55 minutes. We'll squeeze it all in. We've got three films that I'm not even going to try to link together tonight. <laughs> We're going to start off with the latest Hollywood teen horror film, Unfriended, where past sins that you've committed online literally come back to haunt you. We're then going to take a look at the 2013 documentary, The Punk Singer, which has just been released on DVD in Australia through an independent distributor, which is kind of perfect, considering that the subject of the film is the musician and activist Kathleen Hanna. And finally, Kumiko, The Treasure Hunter, where a Japanese woman travels to America to search for the suitcase of money that was hidden by Steve Buscemi's character in Fargo, a film that she believes to be real. Are all three films about women? They are. There you go. That doesn't happen very often. Yeah, they are. It's all three films with the female protagonist. So, girl right tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but let's start off with Unfriended, which I'm going to say right at the front um, combines two things that I'm really fascinated by. Films made for young people, that sort of spills into my day job, and also found footage films. Now, I'm not an expert on found footage films to quite the degree that Alex over here is. Alex has written an entire book on the subject, so I already feel out of my depth. But look, I do enjoy these films a lot. Um, and in the past, I find I'm often the one defending them. They often uh, get a, a, quite a negative reaction, Alex. I suspect you're in a similar situation. Very you're, much. you're often the person defending. An apologist. Apologist, mm. yeah. I do love them, though. And look, Unfriended is an interesting new and very modern variation on the found footage genre. It unfolds in real time, and the camera stays on the computer screen of the protagonist. In this case, it's a high school student named Blair Lilly. It's not the first film to do this, but probably the most prominent one to date in that it's a film that's received a very wide theatrical release. So I think for many, this is something they will not have seen before. Um, not necessarily the people in this room, though, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that. Now, in the film, we see Blair interacting online, first with her boyfriend and then with various other friends from high school all of whom conform very broadly to teen film types. You've got the nice guy, the sleazy guy, the goofy guy, the nice girl, the bitchy girl, the ditzy girl. <laughs> they talk on Skype, they message, message each other on Facebook and iMessenger, they do Google searches, uh, they select background music on Spotify, which is quite a nice touch, and they watch videos on YouTube, and you get the idea. Now, at the start of the film, Blair watches a video of a schoolmate committing suicide from the previous year. She then watches an older video of the same girl uh, who's drunk and being shamed, the full contents of which we don't see until later. During the film, while Blair is online with her friends, a mysterious person intrudes into their interactions, appearing to have hacked the various accounts of their dead friend. Now, for at least the first half of this film, I found it to be a really really effectively it built tension and created a creepy atmosphere through the way everyday pieces of software and technology are made sinister as the mysterious person hijacks their communications you've you know the functionality uh, disappears unwanted attachments are sent and characters get increasingly nervous about clicking the strange links that are sent to them uh, often as conversations take place we see blair half type thoughts erase them and start again it, it, it effectively conveys her growing uncertainty 
Later in the film, you know, lots of ugly secrets get exposed. The characters are pitted against each other. It gets a little bit... It gets increasingly screamy. It's a lot of teenagers sitting in a room screaming at each other. And... and some of the kills are quite gory in a way that doesn't really do justice to the build-up. But look, I overall really enjoyed the inventiveness of this film. I liked the way it played with the ideas of cyberbullying, public shaming, and the really disturbing tendency that a lot of people online have of telling each other to kill themselves. I don't think this is a great film by any means, but it's got some really great things going for it. And it's sort of, I don't know, the promise of what we may see in the future with this kind of idea I found very exciting. There's a really key name um, in Unfriended if you have a look through the credits. One of the co-producers is a guy called Jason Blum, um, and Blum is from Blumhouse Productions, I believe that they're called. Jason Blum is one of the key figures behind Paranormal Activity, and the franchise that ensued out of that particular found footage horror film. For me, paranormal, uh, sorry, Unfriended is pretty much the paranormal activity version of online bullying. The, the frights, the mechanics of frights are created in, in an almost identical way to the paranormal activity franchises. I think it's pretty easy to say that if you liked paranormal activity, you'll probably like Unfriended. If you, if you got a kick out of the paranormal activity movies, then yeah, this is probably for you. Personally, I, I honestly found um, Unfriended a bit kind of moronic and tedious, but I have to be honest and say I was completely a minority on this count. Uh, people in the in the cinema when I saw it were going out of their minds. There was this beautiful woman in front of me that I think I developed a bit of a crush on. She She just lost... She was so immersed in the experience of this film with this hype, you know, this very familiar interface in front of her of a laptop screen, that the lines between reality and fiction were clearly falling away from this woman. She was gasping and she was screaming and she was just having the time of her life. I think that she forgot at times that this wasn't actually happening to her. It was joyful. It was so lovely just being in the presence of people loving film that much, even though I personally didn't really share the experience of this movie in this way. You spent half this film looking at the audience. I was with you. Fascinated. You were like Amelie. Turning around to stare at the rest of the audience. There was um, there was a young a young gentleman there who was certainly younger than the age uh, limits that the rating of this film would have suggested. Who who was like that textbook image of, of a young person watching a horror film? He had his hands over his eyes every time I turned around, and it was beautiful. It was I, I, there was a real sense of community and joy, and I think that that's what seeing horror in a cinema can really do. Uh, so I certainly don't begrudge people who have enjoyed this film that pleasure and that, that experience. It's quite lovely. Um, as you said, Thomas, I've, I've written a lot on found footage horror films, so I guess in a way I set a pretty high bar for what's, what I consider new or, or interesting or, or experimental. So I'm probably a bit of a probably a good judge and a bad judge at the same time. Um, so it's probably worth flagging the context a little more that that you mentioned that that it's not the first film to do a lot of these sorts of things. Um, webcam horror itself has a long history. So just film horror films that in, incorporate webcams. Uh, 2002, strangely, was a really big year for this. So films like My Little Eye, which I think is Bradley Cooper's first or second film. Um, Fear.com, Halloween Resurrection, all webcam, often reality-based, uh, reality TV-style-based stuff online. Um, but what Unfriended does is very a very specific, what I think of as interface horror. So it's a laptop screen, and, and the story plays out on that screen. And again, that, that's got a really long precedent as well. Again, going back to 2002, an amazing film, very low-budget film called The Collingswood Story, 
uh, Joe Swanberg, the mumblecore legend, uh, he did a short in the first VHS anthology called The Sick Thing That Happened to Emily When She Was Younger. That's from 2012. Uh, the Den from 2013. And, of course, Nacho Vigalondo's Open Windows from last year. These are all thematically on very different subjects, but they're all horror films that, that deal with this sort of laptop or computer interface. Another avenue for thinking about Unfriended's history, I guess, would be, uh, again, Thomas, that you mentioned this idea of, of bullying um, and, and kids having secrets online and these sort of morality tales around those those ideas. And there's just a, an amazing film that came out in 2011 that, that I'd really flag if you're interested in that that line of thought called Megan is Missing, made by Michael Goy. A really controversial film, uh, really brutal. Uh, it's been, it was denied classification in New Zealand. Uh, it's very, very vicious, but it really gets into the mind of... Um, of kids and how they behave online and how they interact with each other and it's quite a fascinating little film. Another similar project, I guess, and it's I mention this because it's total out of personal bias because it's one of my favourite horror things of the last few years, is a YouTube series called Marble Hornets uh, that ran from 2009 to 2014. Now, obviously, being on YouTube, it plays out on a computer interface because that's where it lives. It's not, it's not a movie, although they have released it as DVD. And again, it's all about the threat inherent to technology about having secrets online or having secrets and can you trust technology to keep your secrets can i tell you what i liked about unfriended that i didn't necessarily like about some of these other films these i love this idea of the interface what what do you call it the interface footage film i just call it interface horror interface horror it's perfect what i really liked about unfriended and i might use open windows as an example and open windows is a good one because it's just been released on dvd and blu-ray in in australia i didn't know that i actually legally paid to watch it via itunes so so people can go out and watch this film now but elijah wood and sasha gray star in this film it's an intriguing film what i liked about unfriended is it is the interface we are all familiar with it's very very familiar to us it's using technology we all interact with where open windows is really high-tech stuff it's all surveillance cams and it's all um uh, security footage and really high definition video so it didn't have that same familiarity and i find the familiar when it's made horrific far more terrifying than what we say got in open windows and unfriended stayed on the desktop where open windows the camera will kind of zoom in and out of various windows and kind of flick between open windows to the point that it became a bit like traditional cuts and edits in a film i think it lost some of its 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 magic by by doing that i don't think it stayed as true to its internal logic and premise to the degree that Unfriended does. I, I confess a, a strong bias to open windows. I, 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 think know, it's, I know you love I think it. It's, <laughs> I just think it's a masterpiece. I think Nacho Vigolondo is, is one of the great genre filmmakers at the moment. But I do, I do acknowledge that. It's interesting to think about that point, however, in terms of how will this film age. I know that the Collingswood story, and it's been a while since I've seen the Collingswood story, from memory, it's not ICQ, but it's a very early chat software that it uses and to watch it even a couple of years later i think i first saw that film from memory around 2006 it was hilariously daggy Mm. um i mean unfriended is not going to be watchable i suspect in two or three years from now um for that very reason because soft it's so heavily branded it was one of the things that actually really irked me about it was that it's so product placement is out of control everything is heavily heavily branded in terms of its interface 
those interfaces change. I mean, how many times when are you on Facebook and people are complaining because Facebook have changed something? It's true. Well, if you go, go with the logic of this film, it's because there could be a ghost in the machine <laughs> taking away your ability to do certain things. <laughs> yeah, no, I see what you're saying, but... I, just to defend that product placement thing, I'm sure a whole lot of deals were done with, with Spotify over iTunes and all that kind of thing. Twitter was notably absent. I, th- I thought yeah, that was interesting. Yep. But look, at the same time, though, that's what I liked. I liked the fact I knew all these these pieces of software. It's stuff that I use as well. That's what I found creepy. And I think you're right. It does give it a very specific zeitgeisty urgency, um, which I think in, in very large part led to the reaction of the people in the cinema when we saw it. People were just blown away. I'm sitting here saying this all very objectively, and I confess to you in the cinema, I, I have a Mac as well, and I kept looking to the corner of the screen to see what time it was. This film plays out <laughs> in real time, and, and because I was a bit bored, it's like, oh, what time is it? What time is it? And just by impulse... I just intuitively kept looking to the corner of the screen and realising, yeah, I'm, I'm an idiot. <laughs> You're looking at the battery symbol going, come on, die. <laughs> <laughs> That's unfriended. That's, it's got a fairly wide, wide release and um, open windows as well. Like I said, that's also available. So, look, why don't you check out both, compare the two, and, yeah, you, you can get back to us. You can stalk us online. Marble Hornets is free on YouTube. We should start posting some of these links, actually, because um, you, you, I know, Alex, you sent me a really great list of how to watch the Marble Hornets series. And we'll start putting these up on our various online sites. So you can you can stalk and haunt us on Facebook uh, at Plato's Cave Film and also on Twitter at Plato's Cave Film. You can also email us, Plato's Cave Film at gmail.com. Just do it before you see these films and get any dodgy ideas. Uh, you're <laughs> listening to 3 Triple R. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. The punk singer, Alex. The Punk Singer is a documentary about the life and legacy of American icon Kathleen Hanna, a vocalist and songwriter of foundational riot girl band Bikini Kill. Formed in late 1990, the four piece were regarded as the founders of the hu- this hugely influential underground feminist hardcore movement, and Hanna's performances themselves are the stuff of legend. Bikini Kill disbanded in 1997, and Hannah went on to form a solo project called Julie Ruin, and then, of course, going on to becoming um, a founding member of Latigra, who we just heard. The punk singer plots Hannah's performance life from her early days of spoken word through to today, where, now in her 40s, the Julie Ruin have been reinvented as a group in their own right. All right, so what we just have there was, I guess, a little... A little summary of what I would do if this was an ordinary review. The the problem that I'm faced with is that Kathleen Hanna is not an ordinary woman. So it, it when I watched this film, I was struck by the sudden realisation that I'd actually been avoiding seeing it. I'd been going out of my way to not watch this movie, not because I wasn't interested in it, but from pure bone-chilling terror, what if it sucks? <laughs> People were telling me it doesn't suck. It's an amazing film. People I trust, people I believe, but not enough. What if it sucked? It it haunted my sleep. What if it sucks? What if it sucks? Which brings to the surface, I guess, this this interesting question when you're doing a review or when, when when you're a critic. How do you go about talking about something that you're so heavily invested in? And I really hit a wall with this. And then I, I sat down and I, I, I had a think. And, and I asked the question that I think we've all found ourselves asking at times. I'm sure uh, Josh and Thomas, you guys have. What would Kathleen Hanna do? <laughs> what do you guys think Kathleen would Hanna would do? What do you think Kathleen Hanna would do? I think she would throw herself into it and go for it. What about you? No she, fear. I think she'd just riot. Yeah, I reckon, <laughs> I reckon, I reckon F, F-bombs would have been used. 
I think F bombs would be involved. One or two, sure. Sure. So I know, I know what you mean when you say F bomb. <laughs> bad, bad words. Bad non radio words. So to hell with it. I'm, you guys are just going to, that's the setup for me to basically just indulge in a personal anecdote because that's what Kathleen Hanna would do. We're going to go to the back, you take it away. <laughs> So I, I have a tattoo on my arm that is a, uh, a black love heart. This is the same tattoo that Kathleen Hanna has. Um, and I've had it for a very long time and I forget that, that it's there and I forget that that's why I have it because it's Kathleen Hanna tattoo. Uh, a few years ago I was in um, Platform Gallery, the Platform Exhibition Space, which is in the subway uh, down near Flinders Street Station. You guys know where I mean? Yep. That runs mm. underneath. Um, interestingly enough, it's right near the Sticky Institute, which is the Zine Collective uh, Resource Centre, which kind of is appropriate because that Kathleen Hanna, Riot Girl, very big on zines. See, it's all coming together yeah, here. Yeah, nice one. Sounds like I'm babbling, but I'm bringing it all together. <laughs> so I was really pregnant. I would say I was turbo pregnant at this point, and I was <laughs> really uncomfortable. Um, I'd, I'd gone down there to get out of the weather. I was just grumpy and cranky and physically just feeling repugnant and just just having a little time out down there and gathering my thoughts and a complete stranger a woman came up to me and she kissed her finger and touched my tattoo which is not a thing that happens to me normally I have to say I don't I don't know about everybody else, but before I even had a chance to react, this is a true story, she she grinned and she didn't say anything. She turned around and she showed me her arm. She had exactly the same tattoo. And it, I, I'm grinning like an idiot now, and I was grinning like an idiot then. It was such an amazing moment, and it just happened at the right time for me that day. Um, I revisit this because it's not over. That's what I thought when this happened, and that's what I thought watching this film. All of that intensity from the early mid 1990s it's it's not gone anywhere but so many of us are still around the, those kind of bonds are still there and the punk singer this is what it made me feel this is it reminded me so strongly of that story not because of the obvious not just because of the obvious Ka- Kathleen Hanna thing but about the people that were involved now I I was a bit too young to be really part of the riot girl scene in Melbourne um, I was certainly exposed to a lot of the same pop cultural influences um, my own taste I think at that stage were probably a little more goth, so people like Lydia Lunch and Diamonda Galas were probably just as important to me or even more important um, in terms of influences as Kathleen Hanna. Um, but I think it all bled into each other, and I love that this documentary opens with a reference to Kathy Acker, the American postmodern ex- uh, experimental writer, who was so, so important to me as a young woman. Um, and I, I didn't know this, but Kathleen Hanna, one of the first things she says in this documentary is that Kathy Acker was the one who told her to form a band. So nobody nobody listens to spoken words. Go out, form a band. Um, this is... This is what this documentary captures. It's it's not just about history, but it's about now. It's about today. It does a really admirable job capturing the three waves of or articulating the three different waves of feminist history. But um, I think it's worth reiterating that that period, the late 80s, early 90s, was a period of uh, what even then was being identified as backlash against feminism. And you just need to look online or, or read the newspaper. We're, we're there now. I mean, backlash against feminism is a really contemporary phenomenon um it's so poignant i think that this documentary has appeared at this particular time because so many of the things that riot girl was conscious of and was rallying against are still so so topical and so central um i really love that this is a story about body politics at its core 
uh, the documentary really travels with this from initially from a broader social and subcultural sphere right through to a very personal level where the film starts to really focus on her battle with her own body um, without giving away any spoilers. Uh, this is really the focus of the last part of the film. And I really love her relationship, um, the attention that it gives to her relationship with Adam Horowitz, um, Ad-Rock from Beastie Boys, her husband. And I, I have friends that have seen this documentary and were really a little unsure about the, his inclusion. I really liked it because I felt for me it opened up questions about who benefits from feminism. And it really said it's not just about women. It's, it's about equality um, more generally, I guess, and, and just you know people wanting to make the planet a less shitty place to be. Hmm. Yeah, I thought that was a really important moment, particularly the the introduction of of Horowitz and her the point she makes quite openly, and she's really open in this in this documentary about you can't help the people you fall in love for. You know, even though in his lyrics and his artistic designs there are lyrics in there that would that many feminists and many people that she's performed with and, and collaborated with would take umbrage at. And I thought it was a it would be kind of an open admission, and it was a strange reflection on the, I guess trying to balance personal desires and political desires. And I think that. That's what this film is really about. Where does she fit historically, politically, ideologically, and just as a person and suffering something quite poignant? And as the film moves into that final stage, it's impossible not to have quite a profound amount of empathy with what she's going through. Look, I I found this a really touching portrait. I think for me it worked more on the personal level. I, I, I like some of the retracing where Kathleen Hanna sits in the broader context of the music and the sort of the, the first act. And there's a, a wonderful um, anecdote about Nirvana in here, which I thought was interesting, not just in terms of, of that resonance and, and that it comes back to Kathleen Hanna, but also in terms of Nirvana shot to fame post-Nevermind and were like the, the boys of, of Seattle. And here you see in this documentary Kathleen Hanna and you know her, her fellow music struggling gig after gig slaving away and getting nowhere like living you know hand to mouth and i thought you know you couldn't get a kind of a clear representation of gender and music and, and the industry the one only the one real criticism that i had of this documentary was the way in which it, it captured third wave feminism and i thought that was really unsatisfying because it brings up a really interesting point about the body politic about the the return to female adolescence and the, the embracing the body but also showing off the body which i think this documentary if, if this is all you know about feminism you would walk away going this represents what third wave feminism is, which is, which is not true. There's an incredibly divisive aspect of third-wave feminism. It's interesting that you say that because I noticed that it was very conscious of not using the word post-feminism. It talked about third-wave, but it, I don't think once it even uses the word no, post-feminism, not, no. which I thought was a curious oversight. In, I mean, it's such a quick soundbite that they do that history, and I, I, it's, it's almost poetic that it does it so quickly. It does avoid those thornier issues, and I, I, it does avoid the word backlash. I think it, does, it doesn't really go into the fact that, that Riot Girl really exploded out of this quite intense political moment. And, I mean, in some ways this criticism is a little unfair because the documentary is focused on Kathleen Hanna. But if you're going to mention the three waves, it felt like, well, you're not really being entirely honest here. And I thought there was scope to look at how Kathleen Hanna perhaps represents a really divisive figure in terms of those issues of the the body and how she represents the body in her performance. Yeah, that, that, that... That, that's interesting. I, I really enjoyed uh, the, the, the historical detail in this film. As somebody who, I don't know, I was aware of Kathleen Hanna, but I, I think maybe I was sort of too young and probably 
too much a guy. I, I, I didn't. I wasn't into the music at the time. Um, I think actually, when strangers I'll, kissed you at the Flinders Street Station. No, it didn't happen. <laughs> Although I have had that nice tattoo moment, not one of my own, but I've done that to somebody else. So I, they had a Twin Peaks tattoo. It's happened recently. <laughs> they may be listening. Hello, I love my coffee. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Wow, things are getting weird. I don't know why I decided I'll be indulgent now. Um, yeah, look, I, I really enjoyed finding out about this woman who I've always wanted to know a lot more about, and she kind of knocked my socks off, like a, an amazing energy. The, the, those scenes you get where she's singing, not on a stage, but like almost in the mosh pit, like millimetres away from the face of these kind of douchey bro tough guys with their arms folded and she's just screaming her lyrics into these guys face I felt intimidating oh, I felt intimidated rather but um <laughs> paging but, Dr Freud yeah <laughs> but she's amazing and I, and I just thought that, what, what, a for, what a force of nature and, I, and I, I like the way the film presented the fact that she embraced all these contradictions I mean I think there's a lot of that idea of being very, very sexual and, and, and proud of, of, of the body, but also being very angry and defiant and how that caused a lot of short circuits for a lot of men and I suppose a lot of other women as well. Um, yeah, maybe there could have been more about the whole overall third-wave feminist movement, but overall I think it's situated who she was really effectively within within that within that movement. Um, one thing I found in, curious that I, I wouldn't mind raising, and this goes into sort of strange ethics of documentary filmmaking terrain, is I got the feeling it, the content of the doco was very much dictated by her. There were certain moments where she really took a stance about, I'm not talking about certain things because I'm sick of being asked these questions. It doesn't define me. Um, especially when talking about the Courtney Love incident, uh, elaborating further on her friendship with Kurt Cobain, um, talking about what happened between her and her father as a child and on the one hand I sort of admired that stance but the other hand I thought I wonder if a if a less reverential documentary maker would have pushed her for a bit more and so I'm actually just throwing this out as sort of a question is is the film the stronger for sort of sticking to her terms or, or should the filmmaker have done more to press for answers to some of those questions I think there's a political angle behind those decisions and it's, it's something that Kathleen Hanna actually raises in terms of the way in which the media likes to pit female against female and the way in which she sees mainstream press as a quite overtly patriarchal medium and this is another way of keeping them down. So I think in some ways the documentary couldn't couldn't go there because they would have been indulging you know this let's let's pit hannah against love again and let's yep. like let's pit her as the the victimized you know girl of, of an abusive father and i think it's it's so clear in its political aims to resist going down those paths i i, I personally like the control to some degree that hannah had over this project most i think all of the archival material or most of it was hers um, and I believe, I, I can't recall where I read it, but she she had quite strong opinions about who would be interviewed in the films in terms of gender. She didn't want the guys from Fugazi interviewed, um, not because she didn't really like the guys from Fugazi, but she wanted it to be women telling women's stories, uh, and, and I think that there's something really crucial in, in that, and that, that in a way is even more fundamental, I think, than in terms of ethics mm. um that this idea of letting women speak for themselves i think is 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 the most central ideological thing that's what riot girl was about about giving women voices so the form of the film is part of the message and in, in, so. in a way the film becomes very much an extension of 
of, of, of her work, I suppose, and uh, her manifesto. Well, girls up the front. I mean, you yeah. mentioned the crowd etiquette before, that, that transformational moment where she's mm. like, guys, you, sorry, you're not going to be the douchebags up the front of the stage hurting the other, the other females. Get to the back and let the women come up the front. It's, it's funny because there's something similar about um, that crowd etiquette that was raised in the Nirvana doco where Nirvana talked about the, the grunge movement got hijacked by a bunch of douchey jocks who then came to their gigs and were then punching around the other kind of you know, less physical males. It was a strange kind of correlation there, but I thought the girls up the front was a really great stuff, which I, which I wasn't aware of. Okay, I'm convinced. <laughs> um, now, we should say that this is a 2013 film, and it's sort of done the rounds at various festivals in Melbourne um, over the last 18 months. And I, I, we don't normally really give a shout-out to distributors, but this has been released by an independent distributor, Gusto Films, which is run by a guy called Gus Berger, who I, you know, I, I, I've worked with on and off on, on projects. He, he runs things like uh, Blow Up Cinema. He's a filmmaker himself. This is real sort of ground roots kind of, sort of ground roots? Grassroots. This is sort of real grassroots um, film distribution. And the DVD that they've released comes, it's beautifully packaged. It's just gorgeous. It comes with a fanzine. Everybody has to own this. It comes with its own fanzine. Um, so if you want to go to thepunksinger.com.au, you can buy yourself a copy of this DVD in its beautiful packaging and its fanzine. It's, it's a really lovely product. And I, well, I'm just saying that as somebody who's extremely impressed at this kind of yeah, independent distribution. You can also get it through iTunes. Three triple R. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on Three Triple R with Alex, Josh, and Thomas. We're now going to t- turn our attention to Kumiko, the treasure hunter. Yes, Kumiko the Treasure Hunter from directors the Zellner Brothers. And in many ways we have um, a pair of brothers talking about another pair of brothers in the Coen Brothers. And we'll get to that in a moment. The film stars Rinko Kikuchi, who listeners might be familiar with from her, I think, Oscar-nominated role in Babel, or Babel if you prefer. She was the, the deaf girl in the Tokyo sequences, and that was a really striking performance. Um, she had the misfortune to be also in Pacific Rim, but let's not bring up that debate again. <laughs> Kumiko the Treasure Hunter in many ways is a film in two well semi-distinct halves the first place or the first half of the film takes place in Tokyo and focuses on the day-to-day existence of Kumiko played by Kikuchi she's a softly spoken reclusive office worker whose only company appears to be her pet rabbit named I think Bunko uh, she has all the ha- all hallmarks of depression she's harangued by her chauvinist boss and she constantly is being called by her overbearing mother who demands that she should either get married or return to the family home in fact, Kumiko's only real outlet appears to be the 1996 Coen Brothers film Fargo, which she watches on repeat viewings on a VHS tape, um, taking particular note of the scenes involving a very bloody Steve Buscemi um, burying the suitcase of money. If you can remember the scene, he buries it in the snow. The second half of this film follows Kumiko as she ventures to Minnesota, supposedly in search of this buried treasure, this money, potentially taken in, perhaps, by the declaration at the beginning of of Fargo that says this is based on a true story. So what is Kumiko the treasure hunter? And I've been thinking about this a lot since I saw it last week. In some ways, it's an attempt to ruminate on the relationship between reality and myth, because from a stylistic point of view, particularly the second half of this film, it feels like a modern-day fairy tale. The opening, however... 
uh, gives us the title card, which we discover later is actually the title card from Fargo, that this is based on a true story. And Kumiko the Treasure Hunter is partially based on its own true story, that is the tale of Takako Kanishi, who was discovered in Minnesota, I think, in 2001. There's a documentary we may come back to. I think, Alex, um, I might sort of segue to you on, on that one. But what I find fascinating is what is the relationship between these two distinctive halves, the very depressive reality of, of Tokyo and almost the magic realism of this second half. And the second half begins in very much a distinctive Cohen-esque tale when, when Kumiko arrives at the airport and is approached by two sort of religious zealots who are offering tourist information. And it's a patently Cohen-esque scene. Where this film falls down for me, and I think we can come back to some of the reality fantasy issues later, is there's a moment about three-quarters of the way in which, in, through this film where Kumiko has a, a meeting with a police officer who feels the need to spell out to her in no uncertain terms that Fargo is a work of fiction, it's not real, and you know, you're clearly on some real quest. And that broke the spell for me. It re- I found it a really troubling moment in the context of the film because as an audience, yes, we know that Fargo is a fictional film, but we're identifying you know, wholeheartedly with Kumiko. We're seeing the world through her slightly distorted vision, and perhaps this is filtered through mental illness, perhaps it's just a product of, of the depression. The film doesn't sort of spell that out. But when you have another character who then um, takes a kind of a, a position of, of power over her, who I guess you could say we, are, we identify with, suddenly it, it shifts our identification, and that broke the spell for me in this film. And it also trouble, it troubled me that the film then, from that moment on, infantilises her and then has a rather clumsy romantic moment. But then when it, retu- it returns to the magic realism realm towards the end of the film... And I felt that really jarring, and I felt that sequence with the police officer, uh, who, um, not coincidentally, is played by the director, David Zellner, really broke the spell and in some ways took me out of the film in a way I, I, I didn't appreciate. That's a really interesting observation. So you're saying that for a lot of the film, we're on her side. We're seeing the world through her eyes. The film very much encourages us to believe that Fargo is real, that she's discovered this cassette, video cassette, like a treasure map, and she's going to go and find this lost, lost buried treasure. And the moment the police the police officer tells us, no, this is not real. It's not just the spell is broken, but the audience, we are no longer on her side being empathetic with her. We are now looking at her as the crazy woman who's on a ridiculous quest and is sort of encouraged to not necessarily laugh at her, but sort of, a, you know, to be to, to, to almost condescend. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you, you, maybe you've actually articulated my feelings a little bit, bit about this film. I, I, I'm still... I hate coming on air when I don't really know quite what to say about a film, but I'm really struggling to get my, to wrap my head around this very peculiar film. Um, and these two quite distinctive halves, apparently they change uh, the lens for the, the two s- sequences. So it was, it was maybe even the entire camera. Um, not in a way they wanted you to object, you know, to, to be able to notice, but in a way that you could, you could feel that the first and the second half do look very different. And the first half is cramped. You know, she's often filmed in, in door frames and in tight spaces. There is a real sense of her being trapped. And, and I found her, depress- her depression really quite profound 
and powerful, um, but not necessarily in a way where I sympathised with her, in a way where I just thought, oh, I don't want to be in the company of this person who is just so appallingly sad. Um, I did like all the stuff with her boss. I mean, I thought that was a really nice critique of a certain type of manager. I mean, the first time we see him, he's asleep on his desk. He's just this oafish man who's slumped over who just barks orders at her and then wonders why she doesn't have job satisfaction, why she isn't smiling at work. And I think we've all encountered sort of varying degrees of this kind of behaviour from management who wants you to magically be happy even though all we see is them doing nothing while we are meant to, to, to work our, our guts out. Um, I enjoyed that. I also enjoyed the look of the second half of the film too. I mean, just those, those shots of the, um, the, 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 the snow and the ice blowing across the highway was really, really quite, quite beautiful. Um, but yeah, I, I think her descent into the into the strangeness, yeah, that spell was broken a little bit, and the opening sequence and the closing sequence, I suppose, are just so overtly dream sequences that that kind of I lost some of the magic from that as well. I mean, I don't think there's any question that what we see at the very start and the very end is meant to be is meant to be fantasy. But look, I do like the way that it's a film. You know, Fargo because the Coen brothers like to be tricky like this you know pretended it was based on a true story even though it was more inspired by various events that they claimed to have happened and you know kumiko now presents itself as a true story that's kind of inspired by something that really happened um i'd be curious to hear a bit more actually about those of you who've seen the doco about the story this was based on because that's the other thing that niggles at me a little bit that the true story that this was based on sounded awful and really really sad i'm not i'm not sure it should have been the the subject of a of a sort of slightly quirky, melancholic film. There's definitely nothing quirky or whimsical about the story that this is based on. Um, Kumiko, the treasure hunter, I think, has intertextual tentacles in a lot of directions, not just to the Coen brothers. Um, Writer-director Paul Burke-Zeller made a short documentary that you can find online, uh, I think it's on Vimeo, called This Is A True Story. Now, he made this in 2003. He made this very soon after, just a couple of years after, Takako Kanishi uh, passed away. She she was found uh, in a field just outside Detroit Lakes in Minnesota on the 15th of November 2001. Um, she had been working at a Tokyo travel agency. She lost her job and she then struggled with quite severe mental health issues and substance abuse issues. Now, she had been to... Well, the story that this documentary cobbles together, at least, says suggests that she had been to Minnesota twice before and implies that one of those times was with a married lover. The night before she died, the night before her body was found... Uh, they, the documentary filmmaker uncovered records that she had made a 40-minute phone call to Singapore, which is where the ex-lover now lived. So this is a pretty non-whimsical, sadly straightforward story. She, she returned to a place that she was once happy. Fargo, uh, according to this documentary at least, the, the whole Fargo urban legend that grew out of this and was covered in the media internationally, not just in the United States, but uh, in Europe especially, um, was a, a police officer who really didn't understand what she was saying and he assumed that that's what she was trying to tell him, that she was looking for the money from Fargo. Uh, so it very much came from a police officer rather than any anything that she really did herself. Her story is far too tragic and far too real far far too sad not quirky at all and i think in some ways that's what the zelner brothers 
potentially might be trying to get at by approaching this story where you have the, the myth of the Japanese woman who wants to go to Fargo because there's the buried treasure and then the reality which as you just heard is, is quite different and then you have Fargo which is the intertextual level which itself w- was pseudo based on events that happened in Connecticut even though the film says this is based on events that happened in Minnesota in this year which of course didn't happen there's this strange I don't want to use the word synergy but I think there's an attempt to explore where the levels of reality and fantasy and myth blur and can be distinguished but I'm not sure they're clever enough to quite pull it off or not in a way that I got on a, on a first viewing uh, even the fact that it uses the Coen brothers title in for, for Kumiko mm. but in a really blurred degraded version I mean I, I want to kind of give them credit and say from the very opening moments of this film they're trying to play with what is real and what isn't but for me it's that that scene I think that that takes me out of it and takes it away from having this kind of nice balance between what is the relationship between Fukumiko, that incredible depression, and then the magic realism, which I think if they committed to that style more wholeheartedly and kept us on our our identification with her, you know, would have at least given us some way of just saying what, you know, maybe the second half is just her escape from this horrible reality. And maybe then the film could have mounted a more convincing argument in terms of, of that theme, those themes. Yeah, I think I think you've nailed it. You, you, you've summed it up really, really effectively. It's um, And I want to give the filmmakers the benefit of the doubt as well. And I certainly don't think there's any taboo about taking a real life story and 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 being inspired to create a fiction from it although we've spoken about this before i think when it's recent history when there are people still alive there is a certain um responsibility that that, that you may have but i think they are trying to do something very very interesting as as, without repeating you too much taking uh, uh the mythology about what really happened to turn a film to turn it into a film and to engage with another film that was sort of based on invented mythology. Look, I'm still a little bit unsure what I, I think about this film. I did find it quite mesmerising. Um, and I thought Kikuchi's performance is really engrossing. I think a, she's a, a striking, striking performer. Yeah, it is a powerful performer. And I, I don't want to dismiss... I'm just going to backtrack a bit. I don't want to dismiss the first half of the film as being unbearable. I, I just I just felt so sad for her. I thought that was really quite quite profound and, and, and powerful. So I did sort of enjoy the second half a lot more, especially when the, the, the filmmakers did do weird kind of Coen Brothers-esque things. I mean, I did enjoy the bit at the airport with the two um, r- religious fanatics who appear to be off Offering tourist advice, but I just want to tell her about God. I mean, it's it's a wonderful, quirky little moment that could have come from a Coen Brothers film. And I don't think that the cop scene works as a Coen Brothers scene either, because mm. I don't think the Coens would have said this is real, this isn't. Like their films play in that grey area so often. I don't think that oh, character one of their fortes, isn't it? feels yeah. out of place. Yeah. It's really fascinating to think through this this distinction between fact and fiction in relation to the documentary that was made about Takako Kanishi, because certainly just it being just by virtue of it being a documentary, I wouldn't say that it's dealing any less in invented narratives or a lot of it is speculation. Um, it itself is quite articulate about setting out to undo the urban legend, but at the same time it, it almost creates its own. It almost creates its own myth to work against it because there are just so many unknown things. So even even a fictional film versus documentary, I don't think these formal aspects even really get to the heart of these issues. We've talked a lot about myth-making, uh, I think, and separating the real from the fantasy tonight. There and we go. Women. And women. We found a way to link all the films after all. Uh, we, talk, we talked about Unfriended. That's now on general release through Universal Pictures. And we also talked a little bit about Open Windows, which has just been released on DVD, Blu-ray and various digital platforms through Vendetta Films. 
The Punk Singer is available in Australia finally on iTunes or go to, and we recommend you do this, thepunksinger.com.au to buy a copy of the DVD that comes with a fanzine that's been released by Gusto Films. And Kumiko the Treasure Hunter is on limited release through Palace Films. Next week, Cerise Howard is back in the cave. We're going to take a look at the new science fiction film Ex Machina, plus a whole lot more. You've been listening to Plato's Cave. I'm Thomas Cordwell. I was with Josh Nelson, Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Good night. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.